This is not the day for clap syncs. We're like two for four. Yeah, yeah I know, geez, yeah. yeah, like knocking our mics over. <laughs> yeah, like I forgot how to count to four. <laughs> Merry Christmas, happy holidays, Streeter. How's your holiday season going? We have holiday performances this time, unlike last year. Yeah, that's true. It's it's busy, which is nice. Because like you said, last year it was just a barren wasteland of cancelled gigs and concerts that could have been. And pre-recorded Nutcrackers yeah. from previous years. Yeah. Yeah. The Nutcracker the Nutcracker is a big deal in San Francisco. The San Francisco Ballet Company is fairly renowned. And yeah, I would even venture to say, historically, it's the crown jewel of the performing arts organizations in San Francisco. I mean, the symphony is great, too, and you know has become world-class. But the San Francisco Ballet, I just get the feeling ever since... I mean, the world... Sorry, not the world. The United States premiere of the Nutcracker was with the San Francisco Ballet back in the 40s. Hmm. So the arts community in San Francisco takes a lot of pride in it in the ballet company here. So That's cool. Uh, but yeah, they're doing the Nutcracker right now and stuff. And I always thought when, uh, <laughs> when the Nutcracker is going, that's a sign that some things are trying to return to normal. Yeah. Because when San Francisco cancels its Nutcracker, it's, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. I guess my local ballet company here, and I think there's a lot of great productions of the Nutcracker, but I will say I do think San Francisco's is pretty pretty darn good and really unique. Like the actual sets and costumes, if you're into that sort of thing, San Francisco does some pretty cool things with theirs that, that makes their stand out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they make theirs almost San Francisco-looking, San Francisco theme, like Victorian era, late 1800s San Francisco, yeah. they make it look like, which is cool, which is very cool. Yeah. I did hear there there was I think in Munich the ballet company they they pulled their nutcracker this year. Um Oh really? Yeah, it was kind of going around the the sort of Norman Lebrecht slip disc circles as you know they canceled the nutcracker because the second act is racist. But Oh, they canceled it for the I thought you meant because of COVID cases. Oh no, no. I thought no, no, no oh, oh like the old school canceled. Yeah, yeah. Like the or the new school one, whichever one yeah. you want. But it's not it's not like that at all. They they said I think even back in May or something that they were just going to do something else this year because they want to just reconsider how they were doing the costumes for certain things in the second act because they thought it was a bit culturally insensitive. Which I think is fair. I mean and and they, and they okay. took pains to say like we're not saying the nutcracker is racist, we're not we're not saying anything like that. We're just, and I can even imagine that like in America, you know, I think America's, we've talked about before how it tends to be more progressive in its, in its artistic mentality. So sure. yeah. I can totally imagine how the costumes for a ballet company in Munich would actually be kind of like 1900s-y and maybe a bit cringeworthy nowadays for like, say, say the, the, the tea dance, the, like the Chinese dance, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, they, you know, I, I thought it was a, good faith move on their part to way back in the like it's not just like they're all of a sudden succumbing to pressure they said like we're we're just reevaluating. um so i thought that was an interesting move and um i look forward to see what they look forward to see what they come up with that's fair yeah okay fair i i get it yeah sure take like a step back and look at it and think a little bit about it before just yeah 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 um because if you want to make the nutcracker racist oh boy (laughs) you totally could yeah (laughs) Yeah. And if you if you look at some of I forget the name of the designer, the choreographer slash designer, I don't know if there were two different people, but if you look at their initial sketches for the Nutcracker, um, some of the costumes are a bit just stereotypical. I wouldn't call them racist, right? Just I think it's kind of hip to call everything racist nowadays, but I would just say like maybe a bit cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's sure. okay, it, I think fair. it's worth to just say like, you know, you don't want cringeworthy things in your ballet company, especially if they're holdovers from hundred and twenty years ago. The way that we can keep enjoying classics is if we make an effort to to sort of 
paint them in their best light. You know, if if we if we yeah. hold them to if we if we put on productions of the Nutcracker that are exactly as Tchaikovsky would have seen them, then I suspect that um, a lot more a lot more like hyper woke people want will actually want to cancel it and and they will succeed, right? Whereas if you if you go the Munich route, then the Nutcracker will be more everlasting. Yeah, no, and that's the great thing about performing arts. I think right is maybe unlike a painting, unlike the Last Supper, it's going to always be the Last Supper. The Nutcracker or any production, any opera, any even any symphony, but especially like these stage productions, right? Any musical, it's a living thing, yeah. right? It's almost like a body that you know should I think get morphed over time, and people should put their own spin and flavor on it. And it should change, right? I would think Tchaikovsky would be all for that and mm-hmm. stuff. So, if you start from the perspective that he wasn't trying to be racist or insensitive, he was just trying to show—he's trying to show like all these different cultures to Clara, right? Basically, mm-hmm. from from a from a good faith perspective, which I think he was. Then, then it's up to you to sort of take that spirit and update it to today. Instead yeah. of if you just keep the same costume from you know the late eighteen hundreds, then you're going to make Tchaikovsky look worse than than he actually was. Yeah, yeah no, exactly, exactly. And, and on that note, too, it's funny when you listen to The Nutcracker or you go to The Nutcracker, it's, I can't help but just maybe, maybe I'm over-romanticizing it in my head, but you just have to step back and laugh for a little bit that, I mean, what would Tchaikovsky think if he was told this would be performed all over the world for hundreds of years after he died. Yeah. <laughs> like he had no idea. I mean, it was his last ballet he wrote. One of the last works he wrote. It had a like reasonable success at its premiere, as, as any good ballet probably would in Russia back in the days, right? Mm. But it wasn't hailed as a pinnacle of artistic achievement and things. But for him to think that by the year 2021, it's still, you know, it... It's synonymous with Christmas music and it's one of the most performed and adored pieces of art ever created. Yeah, exactly. So I, I do think it's a little bit our duty to to shepherd it into the future in, in, the, in the best possible light. What do you think? Should we just dive into our... Yeah, let's do it. So our Christmas special last year, I think it's still one of my favorite episodes we've done, actually. It was it was great because it was very um, classic, very organic. We really didn't have much of a plan. We just had a question. What makes Christmas music sound Christmassy? Or what is Christmas music, right? And, and we ended up coming to some cool conclusions and stuff. And we talked about some of the great Christmas music and all that jazz, literally. Yeah. <laughs> But this year, it's going to be a little different. We were thinking we would have, me and Shreeder would each have our Christmas lists. And it turned out that we were going to have three items on each of our lists. One is something we want. One is something we want to do. And one is something we want to see, right? Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, it's harder than you might think to, to say it. So what do I want for Christmas? <laughs> All right. So here's something, not so much a tangible thing, but something, you know, I'd like to receive maybe, which would be vocal lessons. Ah. 
probably weren't expecting that one I, either. I truly was not. I, you could give me a million years and I would never guess that. What's brought yeah. about this, this interest? A few things. So first of all, it's definitely a missing component in my performance repertoire, especially since I'm a jazz slash lounge pianist slash entertainer, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, in times I played piano in public before, right? It's been lounge piano sort of stuff, which I love doing. I love doing the American Songbook, the Gershwin, Berlin, uh, Cole Porter sort of stuff, all the way to Mercer and Mendel. Uh, I mean, I mean, even getting to, you know, some more Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, even Billy Joel, right? So all, all that stuff is great, but... I would love to be able to sing and play and be able to sing good enough where it, it complements my playing. That's kind of like the the piano man gig right there, right? And so, yeah. And having said that, right, it's like I can sing as I'm sure you could, like decently. Like you and I, we both know for singing, and we're like out of tune. We know what being sharp sounds like, what being flat sounds like, right? right? But but as far as like my vocal range, my my even yeah, even just my accuracy singing, it's not very good. Yeah. <laughs> and quality of voice and those are the things that are that you learn by actually studying or practicing voice right and also yeah i just love i I love voice so much it sounds sort of silly to say but i i just love vocalists i love like when i play jazz piano and stuff i love accompanying a vocalist it's so much fun and sometimes you don't have a vocalist with you so (laughs) it'd be cool to to be able to sing but but also too yeah i've just always respected voice so much as far as like methods of communication between two humans, I believe there's nothing that's more efficient and more effective at communicating information between two humans as as singing, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. I, like the amount of terabytes of information that can be communicated by voice, by singing, even more than speech. When you hear Ella Fitzgerald or Billie Holiday sing one line, you hear their life story. And also, too, I love choirs. Like, I think it'd be so cool to join a choir one day. I know it's the most COVID unfriendly, even more than trumpet playing, probably. (laughs) Just being in a room full of, you know, 80 singers. Yeah, Yeah, I love choral music, especially I've been thinking about it a lot lately with Christmas. We talked about this a bit in our holiday special, our Christmas special last year. But at one point, all Western music was essentially Christmas music. It was all, almost all of it, at least, was religious, if you go back 600 years. And some of the oldest pieces we have in Western music are... Catholic or religious. And when you listen to a piece like Coventry Carol, which I think was written back in like the 1400s, and again, we don't know exactly when it was written or who who even wrote it, but that's one of the oldest Christmas tunes around or songs around and it's it's beautiful, but it, it just it just sounds best when performed by choir. I think there's a good recording on YouTube of like the Cambridge King's College of oh, Cambridge yeah, yeah. choir performing it and it's it's just beautiful and just magical. Thank you. 
the voice has always been something that's pointed to as the the thing that all instrumentalists should aspire to and and learn from, right? If you yeah. read treatises, say from the 18th century about anything from from flute playing by by Jan Quantz or even keyboard playing by by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, and pretty much all all sort of written methods and treatises, they they say that the the thing we we must always learn from is is the way that uh, one sings. Right, that's the thing that one is mm-hmm. always trying to imitate. Yeah, this is why, for example, to study Bach without studying the Bach cantatas is incomplete because you see when he puts certain figures to 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 text, and you listen to people singing it, and you and you listen to what they're saying. It, it gives you a lot of information about why certain figurations he writes, the implication of that, and the the affectation that you need to play that with. And then when he uses those same figurations in in secular music, secular instrumental music, you know that he's he's keeping in mind this sort of vocal thing, right? And so that's just one example. But I think in general, like you, you always have to be thinking about the voice as a way to think about how to phrase a melody or phrase phrase generally and, and sort of structure a piece, breathing, colors, you know, like yeah. diction, articulation. You know, it's easy to just think about something like articulation as a purely instrumental thing, but it, it always has to have meaning. And that's something that really comes through in singing because there's always, there's usually always a, a text attached, right? So you, it's right. never it's never this purely instrumental thing like it is when, if you're doing a Paganini Caprice. It's really easy to just think of articulation as a thing that you need to go really fast and like really crisp, mm-hmm. right? But um, if you study vocal works, you, you start to think like, okay, why is the articulation like this? Why do, why is phrasing like this? What's the what's the meaning behind it? So it's something that's absolutely instrumental and every instrumentalist has thought so. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting too. We think we sing first and then we play, right? Or like you, you learn how to sing and then you learn how to play an instrument or something like that. But it's funny to look at the people, at the folks that did it the other way around. It's like Louis Armstrong is an example. He, he recorded trumpet playing and all that before he recorded his singing. And it's funny, when you listen to Louis play or sing, I mean, he plays the way he's saying and he sings the way he plays, right? It's just one complete musical package. But I think they both, you know, influenced each other and created something even better than the total, yeah. right? Same with Nat King Cole, right? He was a he was a phenomenal jazz pianist from Chicago and stuff and had his own trio and played like uh his career kind of started and flourished in Los Angeles, I think. And and yeah, he was a hardcore jazz pianist and then uh he got into singing and his agent advised him to record some of his singing and it's funny now we think of him as a vocalist first. But and in a way too, like his again, his playing influences singing and his singing influences his playing. So I think it really is you know, you can't be a good musician of any respect without singing to some degree. Yeah. It's been on my to-do list for a long time to actually. Yeah, I I would love that too. I mean, just we we both play open instruments really. Like I mean, the trumpet has a mouthpiece, but but I would say the flute yeah. and trumpet are two very two instruments that are very close to the human voice. So, even from a purely um, utilitarian perspective, I think taking any any amount of voice lessons is going to improve your trumpet playing, right? It's going to improve yeah. like focusing on the point of resonance between your your eyes, right? At the top of your nose or whatever you want to call it, that right. that area. Um, that's something that voice instruction gets to immediately in terms of opening up your oral cavities and just working on the resonance of that. And and there, that really does affect flute playing for sure, right? You can t- you sound different sure, when you're yeah. sick. Yeah, and, right, And I think right. trumpet's similar. So, I mean, obviously there's all the musical reasons, but from a purely utilitarian perspective, if you take voice lessons, that's going to, it's going to improve your trumpet playing as well. Yeah, that's right, because flute and trumpet, there's nothing that vibrates yeah. in it, right? The instrument, right? It's not like 
There's no string. There's no read. Yeah. Yes. Cool. So we'll see. So we'll see. Yeah, I would say that's um, that's very gettable. So it is attainable. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't even think attainable. you need Santa, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all right, sounds good. All right, Streeter, what would you like for Christmas? <laughs> I sound like Santa at the mall. <laughs> right up here on my lap. <laughs> all right, I gotta, re- gotta refocus myself. Yeah. The thing that I want is a baroque flute. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Now we're talking. And I'm still hopeful that I might actually get it fairly soon because I, I've applied for a grant here to, oh. to purchase one, and I should be hearing sometime soon. So we'll see. But hell yeah, um, you know this this is something that is probably the thing, the, the biggest thing that I've changed my mind on in the last year. Because I don't know if you remember, we we talked about period instruments in I think episode seven, the source code. I wasn't necessarily trashing it, but I was I was kind of saying that I prefer the modern flute and in general mm-hmm. modern instruments and i don't know really what has happened but in the past year something has changed in, in my mind and i find myself more and more drawn to the baroque flute and and I, I really want to get my hands on one and learn to play it and more and more i've been finding bach hard to listen to on the modern flute part of that i will say is that it just so happens that the people who really have spent a lot of time thinking about baroque music they end up playing baroque instruments so those specialists are playing Baroque instruments, whereas the people who play everything are playing just on modern instruments. So there's a bit of a correlation causation here. It's not necessarily that it sounds better on on Baroque instruments, but... Okay. All right. So I'm curious, if you don't mind divulging, but like how much... Would you guess like a professional Baroque flute costs? Oh, it's it's not a guess. Um, They're they're between 2,500 and 3,500. Oh, that's not bad. Oh, okay. Why is it so much cheaper than like a... Because I think it's it's made of wood rather than, you know, handmade silver. Yeah, and where are broke flutes usually made? They're made in a, in a bunch of places. There are a few makers from the, from the 18th century that, that people make copies of nowadays. They seem to be kind of exact replicas. I'm sure there's some science to how they... Because there are original instruments still, and they, they must do some kind of laser scanning of it. And they, you know, they recreate those flutes by hand. But the, the thing that has changed my mind on, on it is when when we talked about it, we, we kind of were talking about how like one one point is that is that Bach was always Bach was always arranging his own music anyway. So like why does it matter yeah. if you play it on, on the instrument that he wrote it for or a modern instrument or even just a different instrument, right? And I still stand by that. I think that's that's true. But to like an analogy would be like if someone say someone like the writer Nabokov who wrote in Russian French and English, and then translated his works between all of those languages himself. He always was translating his own works, but it doesn't mean that there's no point in reading the work in its original text. Mm. Right? There's still some value to be gained from that. So I do want to learn how to play these works that I love from the Baroque era on the instrument on which they were written, because I'm sure that I'll learn something that I can then take into my modern flute playing. One example of that yeah. is, um, so the, the modern flute is almost like a well-tempered piano, right? The differences between all the notes are pretty even, and the, the differences between the keys are pretty even as well. Like It's made to be that you can sort of modulate, and the sound is not all that different. Whereas in right. a, on a Baroque flute, because it's there's no keys, there's no like mechanism, it's just a bunch of holes. Some keys are, are really bad. Some keys are really like dark, like B-flat yeah. major and G minor are like really rough keys. And and I, I was studying this Bach cantata um, that's in G minor, and there's a flute solo in it. And 
it's a really somber aria. And the flute solo is like really, it, it's meant to sound really out to sea and kind of nebulous, shaky, okay. like barely grasping on, right? But then okay. G minor, that's fine to play on a modern flute. So if you play it on a modern flute, it sounds, it sounds oh, just funny. like very, you know, springy and it's, you lose some of the character. I mean, you can play it that way on a modern flute, but I think it's worth learning how to play that on a, on a Baroque flute and learning, okay, this is probably what Bach actually had in mind. Oh, and then right. you can mess with it. You know, it doesn't need to go like that. But like I said, there's something has changed in my mind where I want to learn. I want to basically learn it in the original language so that if I if I want to then mess with it, I'm, I'm going to do it from a place of greater knowledge. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, on the trumpet side, right, when you look at the Brandenburg Concertos or the Christmas Oratorio, most people, probably two-thirds of people, play that on modern equipment, like a modern piccolo trumpet. But maybe one-third nowadays play that on Baroque trumpets, mm. which that that's way up than it was maybe even 20 years ago. Like, no one played it on Baroque trumpets. Yeah. A, because Baroque trumpets are really hard to play. <laughs> they're they're extremely difficult. Y- yeah, because uh, there's no valves, right? So it's all done with your lips and stuff. You will see holes on a Baroque trumpet that you see some people covering up with their fingers. But don't be fooled, that doesn't change the notes. That's just to help with a few, um, with a little bit of the tuning on some partials. Mm. But that doesn't change change the notes at all. It's funny, it does, I will, I, I used to not say this, but I'll say it now. It, box music, I do think does sound better on Baroque trumpet. And maybe that's because, yeah, he wrote it for that. I mean, the trills sound more, more tough. They're hard, harder too because you have to do it all with your lips. You can't just use your your valves and stuff. So, so maybe it brings yeah. more attention into the music. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what I'm hearing yeah. or something. last movement i forget what it's called of the christmas oratorio because there's that recording fairly recent performance recording of that swiss orchestra on youtube planet we linked to it last year in the oh yeah christmas yeah special. yeah because yeah, they're phenomenal I, I don't know much about them but they sound so good and when the trumpet section when they play that opening and when that fanfare sort, sort of figure it's it's so in tune it's crazy you never hear the christmas oratorio that well in yeah. tune. <laughs> uh yeah also, because there's no valves on a broke trumpet, it's just one one long pipe. When you do line the overtones up and you actually do play in tune, it just the resonance just takes over the whole. I mean, not takes over, but just really projects. Yeah, really well across the whole concert hall, and it's just beautiful and gorgeous, and such a crisp but reverberant and sweet um, and robust tone it has that I, I, you can't get. I don't think on a piccolo trumpet or even a B flat or C trumpet. That's just like physics. Take it. if you nail it. That's you're like in line with the universe, right? In in a way that you you're really not with modern instruments. 
one of his treatises, Quantz wrote that that the Baroque flute is it's it's meant to be closer to the voice of an alto than a mm, soprano. Than soprano. Yeah. Whereas a modern flute is very much a soprano voice. And and that's right. one that's another thing that I've noticed when I I've, I've been listening to, for example, the Olive Bach people that we've talked a lot about before. They released yeah. a few weeks ago a recording of the trio sonata from the musical offering, which um hmm. it, it's uh with a harpsichord and a and a da gamba violin, Baroque violin and Baroque flute. And it's interesting that in, in modern recordings, the violin and the flute are sort of competing voices because they're both soprano instruments, right? Um, right so right. the voices are a little bit muddled. But on this recording, the the texture was was really crisp because the viol it was very clear that the violin was there the soprano, go. and the flute was the alto. all things that i'm just interested in sort of exploring and and so, sort of like what you, what you and the and the voice i think these are all things that you know it's just going to make my general musicianship better like it's it's only going to be better for my modern flute playing right yeah right exactly yeah no it's funny and then on the topic of like hip or historically informed performances i do think i don't know i'm a sucker for christmas music performed on like broke christmas music performed on broken instruments yeah. i just think again the christmas oratorio by bach but there's so many other examples. Like, uh, do you know that group? Um, they're from what the '80s or something. Mannheim Steamroller. No. What actually are they? I just know I grew up as a kid loving their Christmas album, and like so many of their songs, they perform or recorded on like what at least sounds like period instruments and stuff. Like Christmas carols performed on broke instruments and such. And yeah, it sounds like really cool and charming and best of in the way Christmas. I think tries to be, right? So yeah. I think there's a little special something going on there. What next? Now it's something we want to do. So here, all right, so what I would like to do, and this kind of falls in line with what we were talking about earlier this episode, I would love to play in a ballet orchestra. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, yeah. So so I play in a few symphony orchestra, like orchestra orchestras <laughs> uh, around San Francisco, which is it's great and stuff. I 
do some other gigging as well. But something I haven't done, I think I did it just a couple times in college, but I was only a, a sub, I think. I was just like filling in for someone that got sick. But yeah, I love to play in a ballet orchestra. And we were talking about the Nutcracker earlier. But I just love the ballet repertoire so much, especially as a brass player. But I think even as any instrumentalist, I, I think the the ballet repertoire is just so good. And like I feel as a trumpet player, if I play in an opera orchestra, it's kind of like hit and miss. Like so there's some operas that are like really epic, great trumpet parts. I think the Wagner or Strauss operas, or even the Verdi ones are, are great. But there's also some ones that, I mean, the Mozart operas, even the Rossini ones, they're yeah. pretty boring to play as a trumpet player. And Your notes per it, capita is horrendously low on those. Yeah, it's lots of count and rest, as we yeah. said. <laughs> but also, um, forget being a trumpet player, just the, the music, too. And operas is very hit and miss. Like, there's some mm-hmm. operas, I, there's a lot of operas I think just aren't that good. There's some yeah. great ones. There's a lot of pretty bad ones that people play and perform. <clears throat> Cosi Fantuti. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear that too? <laughs> Weird. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll second um, that. <laughs> um, but yeah, but no, that's one of many that are just really subpar. Yeah. Uh, and even in the symphony realm, like, again, as a trumpet player, the Mozart symphonies, I, I just don't want to play ever as a trumpet player. I love a lot of them, but there's not great trumpet parts. And even, yeah, just forget being a trumpet player, just the orchestral repertoire. I think there's some hits and some misses. But with ballets, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was because, you know, it was just like the pinnacle of artistic achievement in that era. Everyone strived to create a great ballet or something. I don't know. The whole ballet repertoire, maybe there are a few exceptions, but as a whole, it's just all so good. All the Tchaikovsky ballets, Prokofiev ballets, Stravinsky ballets, even the, you know, modern ballets and stuff. uh, Even some of the stuff by Philip Glass and uh, French ballets. They're all so fantastic. Hmm. I think there's something to ballet music that it must stem from the fact that more than symphonic music, which is abstract, and operatic music, which is a lot of, there's a lot of different things going on, right, between arias and and recitativos, and there's a lot of moving parts in, in opera music, and, you know, you'll hear opera, people who play in opera orchestra saying that, it's a lot of counting rest, but it's a lot of terrifying moments as well. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's so, but there's something in ballet music where it's the whole production is almost a celebration of virtuosity. I think it's just there, there's something in the spirit of ballet that it's you know people on stage are pushing the human body to the limits, and the music is written in such a way as to sort of encourage that, and and then the the musicians and the the orchestra are doing the same, right? It, it's it's all very instrumental music, and I mean that in a good way. It's it's instrumental virtuosic music. It's all just really good fun. The music is is usually active, even if it's slow. It's very there's always um, a driving force to it. Yeah, I will say too. It's um there's a bit of realness to playing in a ballet orchestra, like real timeness, oh, like live, like you're playing it live, right? Where let's say you're playing in an orchestra and, you know, this is your third night playing, you know, even a great work like Mahler Symphony 7 or something, right? It's great work. The goal, more or less, maybe it's good or bad, probably bad, but the goal, more or less, is to play it more or less the same way you played it the last two nights, right? Just, uh, you know, execute it the same way. You have the same conductor, most likely, right? So it's the same interpretation, all that. But ballet will vary a lot from night to night, right? The dancers are a bit tired this night. They have to take it slower. Everything is off the stage, right? The conductor, Mm -hmm. you're following the conductor who's following the dancers. You're a bit more on the edge of your seat playing in a ballet orchestra. You You can't really just sit back and turn on cruise control. Yeah. You know? It's the same in an opera um, orchestra as well. 
um, because because the singers are, are always doing things differently because they're singers, and um, and and they're often inaccurate, which is fine because also they're yeah, singers. Yeah, you have to change keys on the fly. Yeah. Right, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think too with with ballet. I mean, there's if you watch any great ballet companies perform, when the orchestra and dancer are like locked in and in sync, it is uh, it's just so captivating and beautiful it's just like a good example that comes to mind is um there's that scene from giselle that it's one of the famous scenes from giselle like all ballet dancers know of and maybe secretly fear yeah it's from giselle it this clip itself is uh from i believe the royal ballet forget the dancer she's she's russian which doesn't narrow it down at all but um (laughs) but she's really phenomenal and the scene is just like how well in sync they are it's even better than if they like planned it you know it had to be like done live in real time almost the way silent films were done right it's just the orchestra has to just be reacting in real time to everything she's doing and she's also paying attention to what the orchestra is letting her do at the same time so it literally yeah. sort of is a dance between dancer and orchestra that is just so interesting and captivating that we don't really have in most other art forms i'm sure there's some of that in opera or even like uh, Broadway shows and stuff. There's definitely a big element of that. But in ballet, it's just so cool and beautiful. And when it's done well, it's just so captivating in a way few art forms, I think, are. We'll put that clip in the show note, that um, that clip from that scene of Giselle with the Royal Ballet. But even just hearing the music, you you can tell it's meant to be danced to, and you can almost like feel the dance in the music. have it all right you're up what do you want to do for christmas (laughs) yeah but what's on your list of something you'd like to do so yes something i'd like to do it's it's a it's a long shot but i think it's achievable um one one thing that i'd like to do is to start a music festival hell yeah i can't wait yeah i'm gonna be the i'm in right i'm like the executive vice president or some something i can make my own title you'll you'll be the fixer right (laughs) yeah in classical music the word music festival means something very different to what music festival means in, in just sort of pop music circles, right? Yeah. What music festival has come to mean in like the past 10 years, really. Like this Coachella bandwagon thing is like pretty recent, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, everybody just getting wasted drunk in the desert and <laughs> yeah. doing drugs. And yeah, yeah. like you only, only had your Woodstock, like every every few generations, really. <laughs> yeah. But now it's every year. So yeah, there's, there's something that I find really, really charming about a music festival of just colleagues and friends and, and just people who respect each other just getting together and, and, and making music for, for, you know, 
small-ish audience of, of appreciative people. And it's usually in the summer, and it's more casual. There's some bigger concerts, but it's a lot of sort of small, small groups, and uh, it's just it's it's a really fun vibe. And I'm curious what you, what you what you think about music festivals. Yeah, I think they're fantastic. Yeah, and some of them are some of the music making that happens at these festivals is it's just fantastic. When you especially when you look at the big ones like Aspen, Verbier, Tinglewood. Um, yeah, some of Bernstein's greatest performances he conducted were at Tinglewood with the Boston Symphony. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they're wonderful. It's funny, they're sort of like, almost like a conference, but only with like the good parts of a conference, which yeah. is people getting together. There's usually like a festival symphony orchestra. There's all these chamber music sort of things happening. There's a lot of impromptu stuff that always happens, which is always great. And and it's, uh, it's casual is the right word uh, that I think really sums it up because it's always during summer. And you can you can really assemble some all star crews because you're doing it in the summer when when people have time off. Yeah, usually from, are from, on yeah. break. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm also really so there's like those really big ones like Tanglewood or, or um, Verbier, right? Or, or Lucerne. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm also really charmed by I don't I don't remember the name of it now, but Emmanuel Paud has a festival in France. Um, oh really? It's not like it's, flute only. Flute no, it's not flute only, but it's it's um it's I think performance only. It's not like Tanglewood okay. where there's this whole apparatus of like orchestra lessons and festival uh, festival orchestra and all that stuff it's right. really it's really just Emmanuel Paud and some of his friends like um, the uh, pianist um, I think his name is Eric Lesage and, and Paul Meyer okay. the, uh, the clarinetist okay. Francois Lelou goes there um, <laughs> the oboist you know it's, it's, it's really just him and his like buddies and they get together yeah. and they make amazing chamber music and that's some of the best music making you'll ever hear because it's essentially a, a sort of public jam session between between like yeah. old, old buddies, right? And and they're all like relaxed, they're all well rested, and you always get to sort of have fun and party afterwards. It's it's um it's a different kind of vibe, and that's really what I'm the short term thing that I have my sights on is is really just um a series of concerts put 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 on in the summer with a bunch of my friends programming really interesting music, and and getting some really interesting combinations of people together, and and um just trying to find an audience for that, you know. Fantastic. Yeah, I love it. I mean, in the jazz world, too, festivals have historically been a pretty important thing. Like the Newport Jazz Festival, used to, it still goes on, I believe, but that used to be like where you heard Count Basie for the first time, right? It was like the, it was like the thing. Will the podcast have a booth? <laughs> oh, you know it. You know it. <laughs> yeah. Would you do it in um, Indianapolis? Maybe. That probably makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. Like, it, could be, it could be cool to do something where there isn't, there isn't a lot of music already necessarily. Like, uh, you know, not, there, there's, I mean, there's an early music festival here, which is the longest running early music festival in the country, yeah, actually, nice. yeah, in Indianapolis. Um, but... You know, I like the idea of of see, in France there are a lot of music festivals that take place in the in the south of France in sort of ski resort towns. Yeah, I like the idea. I like the idea of going to somewhere or or bringing your friends somewhere where 
people aren't necessarily expecting to hear a lot of interesting, crazy music. Dayton, Ohio. Say, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think Dave Chappelle does a similar thing, right? Like he, or oh. at least he did it. He did it um, during the pandemic when, when all the comedians were out of work. He he has like a his house is in Ohio, right? Oh, is it really so it's, interesting? Yeah, it's. I think it may be in Dayton. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Like somewhere. Yeah, he has like a. Been in Dayton he has once. like a. It's fine. It's good. Yeah. I think he lives there because like no one bothers him there, right? But he has this <laughs> huge complex. But I think when all the comedians were out of work, he basically just got all his buddies. He like flew them in, and oh, they just did like the mini. They just you know they all like did sets at his at his house. Interesting. And that's kind of what I, that's kind of the thing, right? It's um, no one expects to hear like all these great comedians at at Dayton, right? Interesting. It's not it's not like you you're doing this you know festival in New York City and you're doing all like crazy ideas like new york city already has that going on right to, right to bring something really crazy and special you know by bringing in your friends from all around the world who are doing interesting things right to to bring that all into indianapolis because you know everyone has time off at you know this this one week right during the summer and then you also get to hang out with your friends and all that stuff it just seems like this this uh this cool way to to sort of kill a lot of birds with, with one stone yeah the main difference between as we're talking classical music festivals and what people think of like music festivals out in the in, in the populace. The main difference is classical music festivals are usually in really like rich white ski towns. <laughs> yeah, that that has become like the de facto like Aspen, right, and stuff. And yeah, and Verbier, Erting, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or yeah. I don't know why is that. How how did that become a thing? Maybe it's a conspiracy. You know, they're trying to make more money in the off season. These ski towns, and they you know. <laughs> Maybe host a winter one at the ski town. I don't know. That seems that would be fun. Seems pretty James Bondish. You know, he always has to sneak into the the yeah. party in the middle of the Austrian Alps at the big rich mansion and stuff. You know, yeah, skydives yeah. in in the snow. Yeah. Anyways, no, I totally endorse this endorse this plan. I think. Yeah. I think I think it's great. Yeah. So, so. keep your ears open. You know, yeah. I, I think I think you can predict the the cast of characters who who will be involved yeah. in this if, if it yeah. comes to happen so um. yeah, after party at your place right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah as as these things are like the after party is half the reason why you go it's almost like a wedding really <laughs> <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> or to be fair like a, like to be totally honest like a conference right like uh, yeah. well back when conferences were really happening pre-covid and stuff whenever i was asked to go to one or even for work i had to go to one or something i my first question is who else is going? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like, it's just, it is more to do with who's actually there than what's really going on there. So, and it's this place where you can. I I, I always remember like the f- the first time. I think they said this every time, but the first time sticks with me where, when I went to Tina and the they said the the on the first night the the director was talking to all the students. And and he said, you know, don't spend all day in your hotel room practicing. Yeah. You know, you can you can do that all year when you're at school. Here, you should be trying to like go to as many lessons as you can from mm-hmm. different people and mm-hmm. just listen to as many people playing and practicing and go to as many concerts as you can. Yeah. And just hang out with people and talk to them and and yeah. and sort of chat with them. Yeah. Um. And and drink with them and and just you know soak up soak up all these experiences that are going to nourish you for the next year while you're slogging away at school right right. Um, you know practicing like this is where you pick up the inspiration and the ideas that are that are going to um like nourish you for the you know when you get back to the grind coming to a town near you
So something I would like to see or attend, and I, I think this could be like a golden opportunity for you know innovators in the classical music space. But I want to go to a metaverse classical music concert, dude. <laughs> Oh my god! What, okay, so first of all, what would that even look like? Yeah. So, or first is, of all, what is the metaverse? Maybe that's where okay, we should start well, to, for 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 lay listeners. Peter, <laughs> if you can answer that question, <laughs> you can make a million dollars overnight. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's like asking. I mean, the metaverse. The way I think about, it, and the way like people around San Francisco talk about it, you know, we assume we know what, what we're talking about, <laughs> but usually not the case. But uh, yeah, it's almost like asking someone what the internet is like in in the 70s right hmm. where sure the current like the technologies that would power the internet were being built and they knew like loosely what the concept would be you know any computer can talk to any other computer in the world and at the end of the day that's essentially what the internet is right but no one could have told you what the internet would actually look like right or what it would actually be and so the internet 3.0 everyone's talking about it or you know the the metaverse basically the next the next era of the internet that is going to be very heavy in virtual reality and like augmented reality and it it's going to be yeah essentially those sort of technologies that usher in a new way we communicate and interact with each other as a species and as a society and so what you can see from the metaverse right now is mostly like VR goggles, like the Oculus Facebook goggles and stuff, or you can play games. It's it's mostly games right now. <laughs> um, but to be fair, games are often like the drivers of like the next technology, right? It was computer games, arcade mm -hmm. games that pushed compute power back in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. But the idea that some people are talking and already starting to think about and companies trying to develop things like this is the metaverse for entertainment. So an example would be like a metaverse basketball game, or if you wanna watch the Knicks play the Bulls, right? Instead of going, you know, buying a ticket and going to the real world game, there will be a simultaneous metaverse game where the game is somehow projected in a, and captured and put in a virtual reality thing. And you could pay $1 for a ticket or $1. Choose your virtual currency of choice. <laughs> but uh, you can pay coin. something. Yeah, right. So you could attend it virtually with your goggles. And in the stadium is everyone else. It's like an avatar. Everyone else also attending it virtually. You could experience it that way, right? And that's the whole, that's like a loose sort of idea for what the metaverse is for entertainment, as far as I understand it and like what I can interpret from it. But with classical music, yeah, essentially you could have a concert. Maybe it's like recorded in someone's home or backyard, like a chamber concert. And it's, you know, you have to capture it with like a few cameras. You could view it from any orientation, but then you can go to it virtually, right? You can put on your VR goggles and you can go to it and it feels like more or less you're kind of there, right? And with other people that are there as well. And I do, I think this could be huge for like performing arts in general, especially classical music, right? Because it makes it so much more accessible, right? You can attend a concert from your, your home and stuff. Because that's the thing that I think we're missing with all these live streaming things. Even, even the folks that do it really well, like the Chopin competition that we talked about last time, I mean, even then, but like especially the orchestras that live stream their concerts on the internet, just like watching a concert out of a web browser, it, it it does lose something when it's just one more Chrome tab, right? Yeah. But because, and we talked about this maybe a year ago in one of our episodes, right? The 
like the things that are getting more expensive every year, like almost all technology is getting cheaper every year, right? But the few things that are getting more expensive every year in our society are experiences, right? Like wine tasting, your movie tickets are getting more expensive, your Hamilton tickets, weddings are getting more expensive, right? And so this is a way, I mean, this is such like a big sort of opportunity I see is like have experiences in virtual reality, in the metaverse. I think, I mean, my my humble opinion, that's going to be one of the powering things that drives this new era of connectivity in the internet forward. And if anything, this is just accelerated by the pandemic because it's very mm. COVID friendly, right? And again, there's no limit, right? You can have 20,000 people from around the world attend your concert virtually, right? And, you know, it's no COVID risk, actually, right? Yeah. So I, I just think this checks so many boxes of what maybe you know the performing arts and maybe especially classical music kind of need and can so benefit from and as far as i know i haven't researched it too much no one's really doing this it's just so it's such like a ripe opportunity for someone to be the first one to kind of pave this way and see how it works and how 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 successful it is yeah and i think it's only a, a, i think it's only a matter of time i think that's a great idea i think it would be so much better than than live streams like you said as it is now um, it would solve so many of the problems of live streams, which is so the problem with live streaming is as it is now is that it it straddles two experiences that are complete in different ways and and in doing so it is it is an entirely incomplete experience right and unsatisfying right, right. <laughs> experience so there's a there's a thing of being in a concert hall which is it's an immersive experience in terms of a, a sensory thing, right? Obviously, mm. like you're there. That's what life is, and uh, right. it's it's a collective experience. And it's it's it, you're you're just the feeling is that you are at a place doing a thing, and then there's a recording which is more maybe detached, analytical. You're more in control of things going on. Um, you can pause. You can skip. You can lower the volume. Um, you can do other things while you're at it, et cetera, um, while, while you're listening, rather. But the the live stream, it, it feels neither immersive nor is it um, malleable the way that listening to a, like a, a, an album is, right? It's, um, you know, you're listening to this thing under someone else's control, but you're still doing it from the from the sort of confines of, like like you said, just another tab on your browser. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty, pretty dissatisfying experience for that for that reason it would be a great thing for indie artists and small small artists and small groups because if you have like a thousand fans around the world you might have a hard time making good money touring right because you only have a few fans in in any given place but if you can get everyone together for a sort of metaverse concert uh, and you you know you give 50 concerts in a year that could be really nice and, and, you know, and every single one of your or, you know, most of your thousand actual fans um, show up to that, that that could be that could be quite lucrative. And, you know, this is this is a positive sum game, right? That's that's not taking. Yeah, that's not taking money away from bigger artists who are doing the same thing. So I, I think that, that could only be better for for small creators. Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, when I first brought it up, just reading your body language and your expression, right, you probably thought it was. It's kind of silly and funny and ridiculous, yeah. as I thought too. But when you actually think about it, you go, "Huh, this could actually be really something." You know, for I mean, in forget like the metaverse and like its grand implications and stuff. No, just in like this little niche of yeah. classical music, this could be you know the beginning of of a revolution. <laughs> yeah, but but no, it could be great because this could be the thing that. It, you know, has been like missing in so, so many of these like 
half-baked experiences as, as we're just saying with all this uh all, all these live streams and, and such which are it's like yeah they're okay they're better than nothing but they're not that great they're right? really not yeah yeah i mean who who's really excited about it right but if the berlin philharmonic if they metaverse metaversitize <laughs> the, the digital concert hall i mean dude think about how awesome that would be yeah and so powerful for not for it, yeah for the whole classical music community the whole arts community for education right you know, maybe this next year will be the year but yeah I, I want i want to attend the first the first metaverse classical music concert yeah, yeah I, I wonder what that'll be and what that'll look like or the first metaverse classical music festival how about that <laughs> now we're talking <laughs> location here and everywhere if we can not get flagged for for copyright issues as we, as we always are with classical music <laughs> Man, dude, the lawyers are going to make so much money in the metaverse. Like all the <laughs> IP lawsuits that are coming. In. Like, The thing that I would like to see, it's a, it's a thing that I'd like to see happen, and it's not, it's not the same way that, that you chose to interpret it, but what I'd like to see is, is orchestras not really do so much in the way of things like pops concerts and, mm, and other mm. kind of quote-unquote like fun, accessible events, right, yeah. um, to, to put it in a more positive light, because that's, that's saying something that I don't want them to see. What I do want to see is, is orchestras making more of a... Uh, let's say like a musical brand for themselves. Hmm. Okay. So there was. It seems to me like there was a time, maybe in the late two thousands, when you know the the really top tier orchestras they kind of do have musical brands for lack of a better word, right? Okay. Like there are certain orchestras that are just known for certain repertoire or certain styles of playing. Yeah. Can you give some examples that come to mind? So I mean, you know, there's there's a you know the unimpeachable Chicago symphonies brass section, right? Yeah. Like they're 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 known for 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 a particular kind of sound that they get out of their out of their brass section, and and that influences the way they play certain things like like Mahler symphonies or, or, or Wagner stuff, right? There's a sound there. The Boston Symphony, I think, is correct me if I'm wrong. You, I think you know them more than I do, but they really have a, a, a niche in French repertoire, right? Yeah. Yeah. This was especially true, like say back in the '60s and, and like that era hmm. of the of the American orchestra, right? Yeah. Where, yeah, like the Boston Symphony, yeah, they sounded a lot like a, a French orchestra. Even their trumpet players, like um, Roger Voisin, was a trumpet player that played with them for, for a while. Yeah, so they were a French sounding orchestra. Um, Cleveland Orchestra had a very Hungarian sound to it, hmm. and a lot of that was because of George Snell was their uh, conductor, and music director for a while, and and also apparently there's. I learned this recently. Someone told me this, like not in the context of music, but that because um, he, he's he's Hungarian, he said there's a big Hungarian expat community in Cleveland. Oh, interesting. I was like, oh, that that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, the Philadelphia Orchestra had a Italian sound to it, right? With Ricardo Muti and a lot of those guys got that sort of sound. Um, Bernstein got a very Russian sound out of the New York Philharmonic, right? And that kind of formed their identity for what that orchestra sounded like for 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 decades. Yeah. Yeah, I, cu- I cut off myself halfway through. So to be clear, what I meant to say was that yeah, in the in the sort of '60s era, the major orchestras had these 
kind of identities, mm-hmm. right? It seemed to me that in the late 2000s, maybe early 2010s, the, the second-tier orchestras in, in America were priming themselves to sort of build similar identities for themselves. Yeah, and you're talking like, so not the Chicago Symphony, but maybe like the Seattle Symphony. Yes, or the Detroit Symphony, Dallas, yeah. yeah. Um, And and then there was, you know, in the early 2010s, there there was um, was a sort of nationwide, um, essentially like an orchestral financial crash, right? There were... were, Philadelphia went bankrupt, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They filed for bankruptcy, yeah. Yeah, it it was a rough time. And then then, uh, now COVID has hit, obviously. So it seems like a lot of these second-tier orchestras have switched to just trying to get by in some way. So, you know, more and more orchestras are doing lots of, like, pops concerts. They're doing lots of, like, movie play-along concerts. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 like things like, you know, Sinatra concerts or something like that. Yeah. Um, none of these are bad per se, but I see that they're creeping up into, like, a higher and higher percentage of the season. Mm-hmm. And And it's kind of like... I, I, and I understand because it's it's kind of like how it's really hard to make sort of good long-term financial decisions when you're living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah. And I understand it. Like if you're just trying to get by, like you, you want to do the thing that's going to like sell the most tickets for the next concert, not necessarily the best long-term thing. So I don't, I'm not saying that I know that how, like how they can achieve this, but what I'd like to see them doing is, is try to try to build some sort of musical identity for themselves, either with a certain sound or style of playing or a certain kind of repertoire or approach to the music, either like, for example, very conservative, like just trying to sort of make very pure classical interpretations of standard repertoire, which is a thing to be, that's, that's a thing worth striving for, or sort of a more radical vibe, you know, really um, going crazy with interpretations. There's so many ways you can sort of build a, a musical identity around your organization. And I think that's actually what's going to make a lo- make them a long-term financial success, right? It's yeah. because then they're going to have a rapport with their local audience about, like, they, they have something to be proud of. It's not just the local symphony that, you know, one week plays uh, plays along with Lord of the Rings and then another week does a Sinatra concert. And then yeah. a third week does, like, a Christmas show and then, you know stuff like that right it's they have like they they can be like oh yeah we have this local orchestra that that really prides itself on on the way that it interprets late romantic music yeah right you know yeah but that's i don't know how i don't know how you i don't know how you get there because like i said it's it is hard to make long-term good financial decisions when you're living paycheck to paycheck so yeah so I think an interesting case is boston right um they have that divide right they have the boston pops and then they have the boston symphony Hmm. right and they're two different orchestras with different music directors. Some of the players cross over, but some don't. Yeah, and even the Boston Pops, from what I understand, it's it's like a fun time because I know like Michael Martin, I believe he plays he, he plays trumpet in the Boston Symphony. He also plays in the Boston Pops. But for the Boston Pops, it's uh, the rest of the trumpet section is not from the symphony. They're like his friends, like his brother, Chris Martin, who plays in New York and stuff. So they fly in to like play for the Pops concerts and stuff. So it even adds to a more like festive celebratory vibe, you know, with, yeah. with, that, with that orchestra, because it's, it's it's not the same orchestra that is playing, you know, the Brahms symphonies, right? Yeah. And stuff. So, I, yeah, I think that divide is really good. It makes the marketing very simple, too. <laughs> it makes the brand building very simple and clear. And I think there's a reason Boston has had that for a while and why they keep doing it and why both orchestras, Boston Pops and the Boston Symphony Orchestra, are you know, very, very successful and amongst the best of what they do. So I wish more cities kind of took that approach. I believe 
Cincinnati tries to. I think there was a Cincinnati Pops, or there sometimes mm. is, as well as a Cincinnati Symphony. But yeah, I, w- I wish, yeah, there was a New York Pops Orchestra, a so- Chicago Pops, a San Francisco Pops. Yeah. And, may- and maybe that's kind of a, a solution to your, your, your qualm. You know? Maybe, yeah. I understand that, that you want to sell sell more tickets, but if you just keep doing Pops, like you might sell some more tickets than you might if you did like a, a Mahler concert or something. Yeah. But if you keep doing that for long enough, then the then the city itself won't really have any pride in you because they don't really know what you are. You're just yeah, yeah. there's no there's no identity there. So yeah, I think you're right that that having a split maybe is good. Yeah, well, it's funny you talk to people that have been going to concerts for for a long time, right? Some people that have been going to the New York Phil for decades and decades, or frankly, the Met Opera in the New York City Ballet as well. Uh, they'll say. Yeah, the quality of the music making, it's there's some debate there. You know, maybe it's better now, maybe it's not as good now. You know, who who knows? But um but the quality of the audience has definitely gone down. <laughs> That's what everyone agrees with. Where when you would go to a concert of the of the New York Phil in nineteen sixty, during intermission you would go out to the lobby and you'd hear and you'd hear people talking like, Man, Lenny, I mean, he must be sick right now. He 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 must have a cold, right? Right. It's like you know, it's yeah. Yeah, more like he's hungover. <laughs> yeah, or that, or, or that, or, or wow, wow. There's a bunch of new players in the wind section. Are you hearing? Yeah, okay. It sounds a bit interesting. Yeah, right. There's, yeah, they, you know, there's a real um, city identity with their with their orchestra. The kind of identity you usually see with like sports teams. Right? That's, that's like, what I was gonna say. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the '60s and '70s, you could turn on the classical radio, and if you had a decent ear, you could not only pick out the piece, but which orchestra is playing it. Right, mm-hmm. over, over the radio. Now there's been a homogenous, homogenization, um, <laughs> something like that. Of, we'll go with it. Of the, but yeah, of the American or- orchestral sound, right? Where they all strive to kind of just be more, more or less the same. Again, the music making is world class, but it's also just you know less interesting. Yeah, and, and I think it would also be really good for the musicians who play in the orchestras. Mm, yeah, because another another thing that I see with with American musicians is that so many of them sound sound the same because yeah there's something to be said for if you're gonna go the orchestral route there's something to be said for learning how to play within the context of a certain kind of sound or a certain kind of style right so I mean we always give the example of the Berlin Philharmonic but I think the Boston Symphony is another good example mm-hmm. um, or any of the sort of great sixties orchestras in America right you right. you hone your playing through this sort of con- the context of a larger style, and then you end up having an interesting playing style as a soloist that's like different than the soloist from the other orchestra, right? Whereas in American orchestras now, you can probably play a massive game of like musical chairs um, with yeah. with American principal players, and most of the orchestras will kind of sound the same. In fact, that's what happens. You know, a lot of there's a yeah, lot of I was about to swap say. swapping of <laughs> subs going around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, no, and also I, I just have to say too. Uh, like ever since I was a kid, I loved the Boston Pops, right? Because you know, as a kid, getting into classical music or you know being a trumpet player, you know, in fifth grade, right? So, yeah, I loved listening to concerts of the Indiana Jones music, right, and things, and and the Boston Pops holiday concerts, right? With we said Slade Ride. That's kind of like the classic example. Every Pops holiday concert has Slade Ride at the end. Sort of a guilty pleasure too. I I love playing Slade Ride. So. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's that trumpet horse 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 whining at the end, right? Oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. makes the horse sound. Yeah, that should be on all orchestral auditions. That should be. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, it probably is on pops auditions actually. <laughs> yeah, it should be in the final round. <laughs>